And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The church is rocking today. Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. As the choir makes their way to their seats, let me remind you, you have been completing and handing in your covenant membership packets that you received the past couple of weeks. They have been rolling in. Woohoo! You still have uh, two weeks to get yours in before we celebrate our commitment together on February 28. We're asking both current members and any member wannabes to commit for this year to be a part of this people of God in loving God and loving others, striving for unity in our essentials of the faith, and agreeing to disagree on everything else, and to be baptized as a public witness of your faith in Jesus. If you haven't yet gotten your packet You will find them in the lobby following the service at the information booth. Don't leave church this morning without one. Last week, we began our series in Exodus. We're calling it Exodus Then and Again. And we saw in the opening chapter of Exodus where the author sets up a question that will endure throughout this book. And that question is both to ancient Israel, that's the then part, and also to us today, that's the again part. The story of Exodus is not only Israel's story, it's our story too, a story that is real and current and going on in our lives today and every day. And the question raised in Exodus for Israel then and us again is this. Whom will you serve? For Israel, the choice is either God or Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. For us, the choice is either God or any other gods today, including the most common one of our culture, the God of me, my, and mine, the God of self. Whom will you serve? And we also pointed out last week that God does not force people to choose to serve Him. He allows people to make that choice themselves. Exodus is, in large part, the story of God liberating His people from being forced to serve Pharaoh so that they can freely make their choice of whom to serve. God does not force people to serve Him. Finally, God does not ask people to make their choice of whom to serve in the dark. No, God reveals Himself to people so they know who it is they are being asked to serve. God fully informs our choice. And Exodus, in large part, is the story of God making His case for His people to freely choose to serve Him. And one huge point God makes with people is that He and He alone is the Creator. As people are deciding whom to serve, God reveals that He and He alone is the one who can truly bring order from chaos, the only one who is the Creator God. Not the Egyptian gods, not any human being, not even the head human being, Pharaoh, but only God. 
And it makes sense, doesn't it, that in choosing whom to serve, we would choose the one who made everything, including us? Seems to me a wise choice to choose to serve someone who has that kind of power and that kind of love. Wouldn't you agree? One way God makes His case to choose to serve Him is by revealing that He and He alone created everything, including us, out of love. Now this morning, we're going to add to this list of how God makes His case for people to choose to serve Him, to Israel then and to us again. But we won't let go of this creation theme either as we make our way through Exodus. That's because the author of Exodus won't let go of the creation theme. It comes up again and again and again, including in today's passage. So we'll add to the list of how God makes His case for people to choose to serve Him, and at the same time, continue to note where God continues to reveal that He is the loving Creator, the living God, the author of life. Your Bibles are open, I trust, to Exodus chapter 1. We last left the story with Pharaoh's oppressive tactics to keep the Israelites from being fruitful and multiplying. And immediately the biblical reader should say, "Uh uh-oh, or George should say, "Uh uh-oh, Someone, someone is trying to get in the way of the God of life and His command to His people to be fruitful and multiply. There's our creation theme again. We'll pick up the action, Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. What an amazing and telling story to open the book of Exodus. First, let's look for our creation theme in this passage, and we certainly don't need to look very hard. What possibly could speak more loudly of a God of life than a story about midwives whose job it was to assist God's people in giving birth to new life? 
And guess how many times the word midwives appears in seven short verses? In seven verses, the word midwives appears how many times? Seven verses. Oh, just take a wild guess. Seven. Good. God's favorite number, or at least the number that stands for God, the number of creation. What a coincidence. Yeah, right. The text even gives us the very poignant mention and visual of the delivery stool. Do you notice? Now, historians tell us that it was common for women at this time to give birth on their haunches, almost in a baseball catcher's position, while half-seated on a very low stool, a delivery stool, while the midwives were right there to help deliver the baby. If I'm not mistaken, it's a method still in use today, though not as common. And wow, you don't get any closer to the action, to newly created life, than the delivery stool and midwives. The text brings us right into the delivery room. Oh, God the Creator is at it again. And in Hebrew, I'll just mention... It may be even more poignant a picture than that. The English translation of the phrase, observe them on the delivery stool, is a great guess at the Hebrew. But a more literal translation would be, when you observe the two stones, as in when you observe that it's a boy. And I really don't want to say more than that in mixed company. If you're wondering what the text may mean here by the two stones in the context of checking whether it's a boy or a girl, I'll tell you what, I will tell my own kids if they ask me after the service, great question, go ask your mother. (laughs) And if we can get past the chuckles over this very possible rendering of the text, what an amazing picture of life. For you see, the ancients didn't have conception totally figured out, but they observed enough to know that the man certainly seemed to be the source of human life. They viewed, incorrectly we know now, they viewed the woman as merely a receptacle for the life to grow. But to the ancients, the male organ was a respected symbol for life. No chuckles about it. And incidentally, while we're on the topic, and then I'll move on with no small relief. Why do you think God commanded circumcision? Why make that mark there as a symbol of belonging to God? I don't know that God just went eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Of course it's there. It's the most appropriate place to make the mark. It's the symbol of life. When a man marks that symbol of life, he is truly covenanting his life and all that he is, including his family, which comes from his life. He's truly, in the symbol of circumcision, giving it all to God. And in the face of a Pharaoh doing his horrible best to bring death, God gives us this poignant, earthy, bloody, another symbol of life, midwife giving birth story of new life. 
whom will you serve? How about choosing the God of life in the midst of seemingly certain death? God the Creator is at it again. And let's add now to our list of how God makes His case in Exodus for people to choose Him. I'll set it up this way. Maybe you noticed that God's name doesn't appear in Exodus until verse 17 and isn't the subject of a sentence until verse 20. And maybe you've also noticed that the author seems to go to great lengths to keep Pharaoh nameless. Have you noticed that? It's absolutely striking. This is the most powerful man in the world at this time. And his name isn't recorded. Not in all the book of Exodus. Not in all the Bible. Drives biblical historians nuts. Because having Pharaoh named would resolve the dispute over the date of the Exodus. But the author of Exodus wasn't concerned about that. Instead, the author stubbornly refuses to name Pharaoh. But who is named in our story this morning? Two women, two midwives, Shifra and Puah, whose names mean respectively to be beautiful and a girl. Pharaoh's nameless. But Shifra and Pua, their names are now part of the very Word of God forever. And this now allows us to add to our list of God making His case for Israel and for us to freely choose to serve Him. We've got a video to illustrate this reason. Let's watch.
If we need another reason to serve God, God lifts up ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He humbles the proud, he brings down the powerful, and he lifts up those the world calls weak and worthless. And look at our God. He names Shifra and Pua even before his name shows up in the text. Our God not only asks us to love others as ourselves, he himself lives it by example. And oh my goodness, what's our excuse? Because if there's one person who deserves to be mentioned first and second and last, if there's one who deserves all the credit and all the glory and all the honor and all the praise, it's Almighty God. See, God doesn't need us. He really doesn't. We don't deserve Him. We don't deserve anything. And I know strange words on our Declaration of Independence and Bill of Rights ears. God is all-powerful. He's perfect. He's got it all. He is all. He doesn't need us. And yet, He deeply desires to have us and to partner with us and be with us. And my friends, the only explanation that holds any water at all The only explanation of why a God who doesn't need us deeply desires us is love. He loves us. He must. What else could possibly explain His interest in us? And because He loves us, He can't. Yes, I said can't. God God can't leave us to perish. Because He loves us. And He always comes running for us. Not only does He love us, He is clearly bent on joining with us warts and all. The more ordinary, the more flawed, the weaker we are, the harder God pursues to enlist our help. It's ridiculous. Almighty God certainly doesn't need, but oh my word, He desires our help and He lifts up the ordinary to do extraordinary things. One commentator puts it this way, these women are not leaders of the community, persons in a position of influence who have an impact on governmental policy, yet such persons are not powerless. 
In the process of carrying out their rather mundane responsibilities, they are shown to have a profound effect on the future of their people. God is able to use persons of faith from even lowly stations in life to carry out the divine purpose. Moreover, there's no indication in the story that this courageous activity even becomes public. It could easily have been forever lost amid all the movements of kings and nations, but the deeds of these women are made known somehow and their names remembered. While the king of all of Egypt in all of his pomp and all of his splendor remains forever nameless. And this remarkable truth about our God, the beat goes on in the very next story. We're not two women thwart Pharaoh, but now three more, including Pharaoh's own daughter, foil Pharaoh's death decree. Let's pick up the story again in Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Ah, oh dear, we lose a connection to our creation theme with that translation. The word there for fine is the Hebrew word tov. Say tov, which means good. And so Moses' mother looks at her son and literally in Hebrew saw that he was good. Hmm, someone looking at newly created life and seeing and explaining and exclaiming that it was good. Ring any bells? That's God in Genesis 1. Do you hear this sacred echo from Genesis 1 in Exodus 2? God the Creator is at it again. Verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Ah! The Hebrew word for basket is used here and also in one and only one other place in all the Hebrew Bible, only there it's not translated basket And why interpreters choose different English words for the same Hebrew word just baffles me sometimes, especially when it seems from context that the author's trying to make a clear connection between the two stories. Any guesses as to where the one other place in Scripture where the Hebrew word tavah for basket is used? Oh, I think I heard it. It's in Genesis. It's in chapter 6. Think animals. Look at what happens next in case we miss it. She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. What did Noah coat the ark with? Pitch. Then she placed it, the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. This baby is set adrift on the water in a tava, a basket, an ark, wholly dependent on God. Oh, do you hear this sacred echo from Genesis 6 in Exodus 2? 
God the Creator was recreating in Genesis 6 with the ark and the flood. And here we are again. God the Creator is recreating in Exodus 2 with a basket in the Nile. God the Creator is at it again. The Word of God is so cool. Why do we ever read anything else? Okay, we have an author coming to share with us next week. So you may read her books too. (laughs) Ah. My point is we should be reading anything and everything that helps us understand, apply, and live out this amazing, extraordinary book. There's truly nothing like it. All right, I'll try to get through the rest of this passage without interruption or we'll be here all day. (laughs) I just can't help it. It is so rich. There is so much. She placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And I wonder if she ever nursed him without crying. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moshe, Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. God uses the weak. What is low and despised in the world to shame the strong? Hear the words of God through the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. The Apostle Paul runs with this in his first letter to the church in Corinth where he says, Brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, Paul quotes Jeremiah, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So allow me to boast a bit about our God. Rather than using power as it is usually exercised in the world, God works through persons who have no obvious power. 
Indeed, they are unlikely candidates for the exercise of power. The choice of five women in Exodus 1 and 2 entails much risk and vulnerability for God. That risk is real, for these persons could fail and God would have to begin again. But they prove highly effective against the ruthless form of systemic power. Even more, God's plan for the future of the children of Israel rests squarely on the tiniest shoulders of one of its helpless sons, a baby in a fragile basket. Who would have believed that the arm of the Lord could be revealed in such a one? By the way, there would come a day when God's plan for the future of not only Israel, but also of everyone would again rest squarely on two tiny shoulders. Shoulders, A baby called the second Moses. Another baby hunted by a ruthless king. And while not placed in a fragile basket floating on water, a baby placed nonetheless where water was held a manger. Oh, I hope this gives us all hope this morning. Hope that in the midst of any situation in life, any situation where it seems God is absent, because what appears to be hopeless is actually filled with positive possibilities for those who have faith in the one and only one Creator God who joins with ordinary people to do extraordinary things. The message this morning rests very near and dear to my heart because there was a time not too long ago and it's something I still wrestle with today and every day, even right now. This feeling that I am inadequate, that God can't use me to do extraordinary things because I'm flawed and I struggle with sin and I'm too ordinary. People ask me why I didn't go into ministry earlier in life. One of the reasons is because I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think God could use me. I'm too proud. I'm too loud. I like to speak a little too much. My weaknesses are too great. I'm just not ready. I'm just not good enough. I'm just not sinless enough. Some of you know before I started preaching here now over three years ago, I had preached maybe four sermons ever. And really the last thing I wanted to be was a preaching pastor. I struggled with it, and I still do, with feeling good enough to be of much use for God. But then one day, one day, this hopeful living theme not only in Exodus, but in all the Bible, changed my outlook. God gave me a teacher, 
a remarkable teacher. He's the best I've ever heard by far. He's been here. His name is Ray Vanderlaan. And I saw in this incredibly vulnerable and incredibly flawed man hope for my place in partnering with God to do something extraordinary with him. In seeing Ray just lay it all out there the way he does, pushing past his own struggles and imperfections and insecurities, which are formidable, God reached deep down in me and whispered so loudly I can still hear it, Todd, you and I can do extraordinary things too, but I need you to go for it. Because you know and I know that you're not. And so I'm trying. So help me God. And let me tell you two things. First, it ain't easy doing battle with your own imperfections every day. But second, let me tell you that God does help when you fight through your own securities and just go for it. And when you do, you will see Him do extraordinary things through your ordinary life. Bible says, God says, and my own experience and countless other experiences of believers says too. Do you guys ever feel that way? Well, I can't do extraordinary things because I'm just ordinary. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, God has put it on my heart to declare to you this morning, with our God, yes, you can. You can do extraordinary things with God, so go for it. Will you sign a covenant for a year promising to love God with all your heart, soul, and might and your neighbor as yourself? Promising to strive for unity and diversity even when people tick you off? Will you take the public step of baptism? Or will you respond with something from my culture, the great Dutch expression of, well, you, well yeah, but. You know, what is this thing here? And I'm not really saying, and, well, I don't know about this. And what happens if I'm a member and I don't... Go for it! Please! Will you take whatever you have, whatever talent, great or small, whatever wealth, rich or poor, whatever you are and whoever you are, will you take your life like Jesus took His and choose to serve the Creator God who just loves to do extraordinary things with ordinary people He simply adores? Will you push through any insecurities you might have, any tendency to feel inadequate, any struggle you face, and just go for it with God? Will you take that risk with the all-powerful, all-loving Creator God who eagerly takes that risk with and for you? You know, my answer is yes. What's yours? (laughs) 
Years ago, years ago, Ted Turner was quoted as saying, Christianity is for losers. When I first heard that, made me mad. Yeah, whatever, Ted, you're a loser. <laughs> but you know what? He was right. I'm delighted to tell you this morning that he was right. You want another reason to choose to serve our God? Our God takes what the world seeks to crush under its heel. He takes those the world calls foolish or stupid or weak or losers and he makes them winners. Our God does extraordinary things with ordinary people. That's our God. Amen. And here he is asking us again in Exodus. He's asking us again. He's making his case and asking us again, whom will you serve? And hey, you can even do extraordinary things if you're saddled with the name Shifra or Pua. What more could you want? Today is the first time in my life I've ever worn jeans while preaching. At least three dozen of you before church. Oh, are you preaching today? You know, give me. And I got to say, it's been okay. I just wanted to be ordinary today. Because our God loves to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. And He's longing to do extraordinary things with you. Whom will you serve? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just love this about you. That despite having no need for anything other than yourself, despite having all the power imaginable, you seek desperately to partner with the flawed and the weak and the broken and those the world is disgusted with because they don't measure up. Father, if there's anyone here today who struggles with feeling inadequate, would you rush to them even now and fill them with a sense of your love and care and adoration 
Let them know and feel you in a very real way. And convince them. Show them. Reveal to them that they can do extraordinary things with you. Father, we love you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, speaking of extraordinary things through ordinary people, don't forget, we've got Margaret here next week. She and her husband, Leif, our family, they're members here at West Bowles. And I've got to tell you, I'm, I've been so blessed by these two, and I'm just thrilled to name them my very good friends. She's going to share something with us she calls the sacred echo, an echo that we long to and need to hear. Let me tell you, what God has given her to share may very well change your life. You will certainly be blessed, and you won't want to miss her. I know I won't. So bring a chair, bring a friend to sit in the chair. We've got chairs. Pull up a chair, pull up a chair and listen um, Listen to Margaret. Listen to the voice of God as Margaret shares with us again next week, won't you? Would you stand, please, for God's benediction, his good words. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha, Behol levavcha. Uvahol nafshacha, uvahol meodecha, uveahafta reacha komocha. Amen. Hear, O Israel, hear, O West Bowles. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Drive safe out there, brothers and sisters. See you soon.